Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. I want to do something a little bit different tonight, marking the complexity of this weekend. Shabbos itself is Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, but the fast day is pushed off till Saturday night and Sunday. And I'd like to study with you a story in the Talmud and the Gemara, famous story, and it's a story that has a lot of lessons to it, and in a certain way portrays multiple themes that come up this weekend, which I which I hope to sh- to share with you tonight. The story is uh, the booklet that I've handed out. The story concerns the last days in Jerusalem in the Second Temple period that led up to the destruction of the Temple. Now I'm not going to read through the whole thing. You could take it home and there there are many more details of the story that I'm not going to get into. It's fascinating. But basically, the internal situation among the Jews in Jerusalem was quite complex. Because as you know, the Romans had laid a siege around Jerusalem. It was in place for two and a half years. Until finally, the Romans were able to break through the walls of Jerusalem There was hand-to-hand combat (coughs) for a period of about three weeks, leading to Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, when the temple, Beit HaMikdash itself, was set afire. The internal complexity is that among the Jews in Jerusalem at that time, there were different factions, there were different groups with different opinions about what to do. There was one group a bit more uh, conservative with a small c and uh, they said uh, you know what? We can outlast them. Jerusalem at that time had storehouses uh, with enough food and there were, were, were wells, underground springs that provided that provide that Jerusalem has its own water source. <clears throat> so they had all they needed. So good to see you. Come join us. There's potato kugel here for you to have and have a seat. And there's sheets. Um, I I think there's some extra sheets here. Please hand them out. And please come join the table. I'm sorry. We didn't set up enough seats. I I apologize. But there's a seat here. I won't bite. So one group said, we'll outlast them. We'll stay here. 
There was another group that said, let's go fight them, which is pretty ridiculous because you're talking about a tiny group of Jews under siege against the Roman Empire in capital letters, but they were, the Talmud uses the word baryonim. You could use the word uh, zealots, guerrillas, I mean the fighters, you know. Welcome, join us, nice to have you. Um, but they wanted to fight. Well, what are you going to do when two groups of Jews are not sure which path to take? Well, these Bayanim, they had an interesting idea. They set fire to the storehouses. Their own. And burned the food. Forcing the Jews of Jerusalem to have to take some kind of action. It's an incredible story of how we are our own worst enemies. This is something that comes up over and over in Jewish history. We can survive anything except what we do to each other. An incredible story. In any event, more negotiations. And, of course, there's always a back channel. So, I'm on the first page of the booklet, on the right-hand side near the bottom. Abba Sikra was the head of the Baryonim and was a nephew to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the recognized rabbinic leader, the establishment figure. And uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, listen, we got to get together and talk. We, we're going to have to figure this out. We can't, we can't work like this. Okay, you read it, you'll see more of the story. Like the internal politics are just fascinating. But I need to go further because I want to get to the point that I want to make. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, listen, I, here's what we're going to do. I need you to smuggle me out of the city and if you can just get me to the other side, I can find a way to, so to end this situation peacefully. <coughs> okay, there's a whole long story of how he was smuggled out, and, but he makes it to Vespasian. Vespasian was the Roman general who was laying siege on behalf of the Roman Empire, laying siege against Jerusalem. But he made it to Vespasian. A whole long conversation. You'll see it. I only want to go to the end of the point. I'm on the third page of the booklet. On the top left-hand corner it says 56B1. 
and I'm on the right-hand column near the bottom. Five lines from the bottom. So Vespasian, after back and forth, says, okay, what do you want? And here are the famous words. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai says, three lines from the bottom, Tame li yavne v'chachameha. Give me yavne and its sages. Now let me explain what that means. Jerusalem, of course, Yerushalayim is in the southern part of Israel. <clears throat> That's where the siege was. Yavne, although it is the name of a place today, it's not in the same place, the same location. Yavne was a small town in the northern part of Israel, near Tiberia, Tiberias. So what Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai was saying to Vespasian is, I'll tell you what, here's the settlement. We give in. We give up Jerusalem. We give up sovereignty. We give up government. You win. You take over. You have Jerusalem. No more Israel. Here's what I want. Allow us to escape and relocate to the northern part of Israel in this tiny place called Yavne. We don't want a government. We don't want a country. We don't want an army. We don't want a bureaucracy. Just let us be. Keep in mind, Rome's argument with the Jews was largely political. Rome was conquering the world. They wanted political sovereignty. What you believe, what you study, what you practice, that was not so much of interest to Rome. And Vespasian said yes. And that's what happened. A short amount of time later, Jerusalem was destroyed, Besamidus was burnt, those who could escape, escaped to the north, and Yavne and the surrounding area became the center of Jewish life in Israel, not Jerusalem, because that was uh, burnt. The, the famous story a number of years later with foxes uh, running around the, the, the ruins. It was destroyed. Nothing. It was an empty place. But Yavne became the area Yavne, Tiveria, Tsipori. These towns became the Jewish center. In fact, in the next century, the Jewish life shifted north. And the period of the Mishnah, the 
first century, the second century, the third century. It was written in this area, the northern part of Israel, Rabbi Yudah Nasi. Rabbi Judah the Prince, who edited the Mishnah in the third century, he lived, he did that in Sipori, which is just a few miles from Tiberias. This shift is one of the major shifts in all of Jewish history. And the first question, and it's also going to be the last question, was he right? Did he make the right decision in this negotiation? Now, I just want to point out to you that immediately that was a disputed issue. If you look, please, at the next page. 56B2, top of the page on the left-hand side. So, Rav Yosef, or some say it was Rabbi Akiva. So this is now less than a hundred years later. This is almost contemporaneous. He made a big mistake. They quoted a verse. It's as if God took away wisdom from the wise. Yochanan and Zakai, why did you give up Jerusalem? Why didn't you just say, Vespasian, go home. Leave us alone. We're not bothering you. Why did you give up Jerusalem? The Gemara explains. So what would Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai have answered to that challenge to what he decided? Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai would have thought that Vespasian would have said no. It was a calculation. You know, in any negotiation, if you ask for something outrageous, you shut down the whole thing. You've got to ask, you've got to ask for something that's realistic. If you start off with something that's completely outrageous, forget it. No. This is what Rabbi Yochanan and Zaki thought he could do. So, already contemporaneously, there is this dispute about whether he was right or wrong. Now, Let's consider the consequences of this decision. And I want to show you how momentous it is up until today and including today and going forward. I want to show you the implications. Part of what I want to share with you is based on the writing of Rabbi Cook, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel. Part of it is based on some other sources including some of my own ideas, and they're a little bit mixed together. Rav Cook says that this moment, these four words, Tain li yavne I, I, I said this once before. It's only four words in Hebrew. <laughs> I said something about four words, and someone questioned me. In Hebrew, it was four words, but in English, it's different. <laughs> four words in Hebrew. Tain li yavne It represents a fundamental shift in Jewish history. Because Rav Kook says that 
there are two eras in Jewish history, we can differentiate, that correspond to two ideas or two trends within Jewish life. And the truth is, these two trends are present in all times and within all people to differing degrees. It's a question of emphasis. One idea is a spiritual idea. A sense of passion and longing for God. A person or a people who is on fire with a love of God and wants above all else and before all else to come closer to God. The second idea is the religious idea. The question or the concern of how are we to serve God? What does God want us to do? I know it sounds very similar. And of course, both of these are necessary and important. It's a question of degree. When the temple was standing, the dominant Jewish idea was the spiritual idea. What animated the Jewish people for all of those centuries was this desire to come closer to God. Who were the dominant personalities during that period? The prophet who speaks to God and speaks from God, that direct contact with God's word, the prophet and the priest, the Kohen, who officiates in the Beit HaMikdash in the Holy Temple, who offers a karban. We translate that as sacrifice, but remember we discussed it before. The word karban means karab, to come closer. What both the prophet and the priest have in common is that they are conduits to this spiritual idea, this drive to connect to God. And that was the, the idea that, was, that had the higher priority. Yes, of course, you have to know how to serve God, what to do, yes. But the main impetus is, how do we get closer? How do we connect? How do we, how do we have this intimacy and this love with God? And then Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai said the four words, Ten liyavne v'chachamel. So what happens? We lose Jerusalem. We lose the Holy Temple. But at least we can observe the Torah. At least we can study Torah and we can observe Torah. The religious life. What does God want us to do? God wants us to keep Shabbos. God wants us to keep kosher. God wants us to be honest. God wants us to be kind. So let's, that becomes the emphasis.
the dominant personality of the priest and the prophet recede. There's no more prophetic era, and the priest, the Kohanim, their role is greatly diminished. Without there is some role, a pedigree of being a Kohen, a little bit even for a Levi, but it's it's minuscule. Who becomes the dominant personality? The teacher, the rabbi, the scholar becomes the dominant personality. That is a shift of unimaginable consequence in Jewish life. It's a shift of emphasis from the spiritual idea to the religious idea. It's a shift in emphasis from the mystical, fiery spirituality to the rational, pragmatic, particular observance. In a sense, it's a shift from the forest to the trees. It's the shift from a bigger picture of what it means to be a Jew. It's a shift from that to a narrowing, a focus to how to act as a Jew. Now again, both ideas are important and relevant at all times. I'm, I'm talking about priority. Let me go to another, a, a whole other layer. Because what is also happening with this shift is a gigantic narrowing of focus of what Judaism is and what it means to be a Jew. If I were to ask you, if, if I were to ask many people today, and this is over the last 2,000 years, what is a religious Jew? What does it mean to be Jewish? Where are you Jewish? I think a lot of people would say, well, keep Shabbos, keep kosher, we observe Judaism, hopefully in our homes also, in synagogue, Jewish schools, they're Jewish institutions. <clears throat> that idea of what it means to be a religious Jew is warped. It is handicapped. It is like this tiny little slice of what the Torah addresses. The Torah doesn't address what to do in synagogue, how to act on holidays. That's one little verse. The Torah talks about how to live life, how to do agriculture, how to do politics, how to go to war, how to have a government, how to have a, a social policy network, how to be a person at a time of leisure, how to, how to do sports, how to work every area of life. Because during the time that the temple was standing and there was a sovereign Jewish nation, all of those things are part of 
what Judaism meant, and they're all covered by mitzvot's commandments in the Torah. Yes, the Torah has commandments about keeping Shabbos. The Torah also has commandments about how to be a farmer. The Torah has commandments about how to go to war. The Torah has commandments about how husbands and wives are supposed to act towards each other. The Torah has commandments about city planning policy. Preserving green space around metropolitan areas. That's a mitzvah in the Torah. It's in Vayikra. It's right there. Etc., etc., etc. We don't focus on that because for 2,000 years, well, there's no such thing as a, as a Jewish army, so that wasn't relevant. There's no such thing as city planning for Jews. Most of that time, we were not even allowed to own land, so we didn't have any of that. There was no agricultural stuff because we weren't agriculturalists. We were merchants and, you know, smugglers or whatever we did in, in different places. So, of, of, the, of all of the mitzvot in the Torah, with the destruction of the temple and the exile from Jerusalem and later from Israel, we're reduced to this tiny, tiny amount. What Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai traded was the, the width and breadth of Judaism in order to preserve this little bitty narrow piece, Shabbos and kosher and holidays. And the idea of what Judaism is about just became, it's, it's just a shadow of itself. So, And with that narrowing comes another consequence which to a greater or lesser degree is a characteristic of the last 2,000 years of Jewish history and that is a lessening of emphasis on connection with God. Now it's a cliché but it's a cliche because there's truth to cliches. That so many Jews are so concerned with is this action permitted or prohibited on Shabbos that they lose sight of the fact that what Shabbos is supposed to be about is a moment of intimacy with God. But who thinks about intimacy with God when you're worried about this light bulb and, and, and this food and how do I make tea and now, please don't get me wrong. It is in fact correct that one has to make tea on Shabbos in the proper way. And it is also in fact correct that there are many Jews who are able to focus on how to make tea on Shabbos and use that as a vehicle to being able to experience God in a more intimate way on Shabbos. That, of course, is the goal. But it's hard. How many Jews do that? And, of course, 
those many, again, you know, exceptions on all sides, but many of those Jews who concentrate on the spirituality and the mystical and the Kabbalistic do so without the ritual practice of the nuts and bolts. How do you marry the two together? It's very, very difficult. You know, I, I, and prayer. <coughs> there are so many subjects to talk about when it comes to prayer. That's what we want to use the fall for. But, you know, when to stand and when to sit and when to bow and how to bow. But how do you remember all that stuff and remember that the whole point of it is that you're talking directly to God? And this is equally difficult if you are able for a moment to focus that you're talking directly to God, are you also able to remember to bow in the correct manner with all the different steps that are involved? That's very, very difficult. When we observe Tisha B'Av <coughs> and we mourn for the destruction of Jerusalem, we need to think about what is it that we're mourning. So we're mourning the destruction of a city. We're mourning the exile of our people. Yes, that's true. We're also mourning the loss of a historical era and all that that gave us. And the, the, the way that so many Jews go about their Judaism in a dry, routine, perfunctory manner is part of what we lost in the destruction of the temple. But here's what's amazing. <clears throat> because Tisha B'Av is a very, very complex day. And there's so much to talk about. I've had the opportunity to share some of this with some of you before. Because it's changing. It's changing in our day. With the establishment of the modern state of Israel, over the last, let's say, 150 years, but really picking up speed in our day, we see, starting backwards, a gradual widening of focus of the laws of the Torah. When Jews came back to Israel in the modern period, in the 1800s, one of the first questions they had to deal with was Shemitah, sabbatical laws. <laughs> Most Jews didn't know what to do because it had not been observed for 1800 years. So now comes the question, how are we supposed to observe a body of law that we haven't had applicable for 1800 years? And we have all kinds of difficult uh, uh, circumstances in Israel. What are we going to do? Well, it's an amazing thing that in the 1800s, somehow, I I'm going to 
I'm going to answer somehow. I'm not going to leave it as somehow in a moment, but let's just say for now, somehow, there were scholars and teachers who were able to analyze. <coughs> I'm good. And discuss. And not only theoretically, but actually apply it to real life. Here's how you do it. There was a rabbi in the early in the early 1900s, known as a Chazon Ish, a man who, growing up in Europe, was the most cloistered, scholarly. I, I don't want to use um, disrespectful words because because he was such a great person. But I mean, I once heard a story. Uh, they said to uh, someone asked. A yeshiva boy, you know, studying all day, Talmud all day. Do you play any sports? Yeah. Chess. It's an it's a, a cerebral, internal, secluded, scholarly, academic life. And all of a sudden he gets to Israel. Now he was he was a genius and he was brilliant. He gets to Israel. And he's the one who says, yeah, this is what the tree is supposed to look like. Yeah, this is how the prohibition against grafting one tree against another works. This is what the flower is supposed to look like in order to pick it or not pick it. That is, he was able to translate all of the academic, hypothetical, theoretical stuff that he had been studying into the real world. It's just incredible that there was such a person and others like him who were able to do it at that time. But all of a sudden, agricultural laws come back. So the laws about sabbatical year, laws about tithing, laws about leaving the corners for the poor. All of a sudden, those subjects come back. And then we get a state of Israel. Now let's discuss. What kind of political structure does the Torah have in mind. I'm not suggesting that the modern state of Israel always follows what Jewish law says, but for the first time in 1800 years, we're at least trying to talk about what kind of a government does the Torah envision? What is the halachic status of the Prime Minister of Israel? It's a fascinating subject. Because it's actually based on a comment made by the Ramban, Nachmanides, in the 1400s. And of course, in the 1400s, you know, what are you talking about? A government in Israel, it doesn't exist. But in the, but in the 20th century, it did exist. And we looked to the Ramban for a halachic status. How do you go to war? So, I've discussed this in other, in other settings. But the IDF, Tzvag and Ali Israel, has a code of ethics. Now that code of ethics is based on several sources. It's based on British law and American law and international law and also on the Talmud. Because Jewish law has a completely fleshed out system of military law, military ethics doesn't mean that it's easy to understand. There are lots of complications, lots of disputes about what to do in an actual circumstance, but 
when we talk about something like how do we protect ourselves against missiles coming from Gaza, the we go to the Talmud. Those subjects are discussed there. I'm not saying the answers are easy. But we have the sources. For 1,800 years, you know, when is it ever relevant for me to have to discuss the subject of do I have to protect civilians if I go to war? I'm not going to war. I'm not, there are no, it's not relevant. All of a sudden it's relevant. And in fact, the code of ethics of the IDF was written by a man, Asa Kasher, an amazing man who is an expert in all those systems of law, including Talmudic law. And much of his writing and much of the current military ethics in Israel does come from Jewish law. Not everything, but a lot of it does. Etc., etc., etc. What we see in our day is a widening of the scope of the areas of Jewish law that are applicable in our day. Yeah, I was just thinking that the, the issue with the African refugees, send them out or not, and the big conversation discussions with some rabbis who are looking at sources saying, how do we treat strangers? Another rabbi saying, you look after your family first. And okay. and the, the perfect, break. perfect example, because think how ludicrous it would be for 1,800 years for anyone to think about that subject. And now, yeah, that's a real subject. So let's figure out the answers. And of course, we're Jews, we're going to argue about it. Okay, but at least we're arguing about which passage in the Talmud to quote. But for 1,800 years, it wasn't relevant. So what we see is this widening of scope. Now, it's not yet back to where it was when, when the temple was standing. But the trend is certainly there, and it's widening all the time. A couple of years ago, we had a guest... He was here for the summer. A wonderful man. And he lives in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he was here for the summer. So I said to him, what do you do? So he said, I'm a city planner. So I said, wow, my goodness. The merit the, 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 the spirituality of being a city planner in Israel? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I design bridges. They asked me how to build the road. I said, do you understand? That, that's the Torah. The, the, those are Torah laws. How you build a city, how you provide a, a, a physical infrastructure for a population. That's Torah. For 1,800 years, there was no such thing as a Jewish city planner. There could have been a person who was a city planner who happened to be Jewish, but a person who was a Jewish city planner didn't exist. Now it exists. It exists so much that he's bored. And that is, he doesn't even realize how significant it is. But it's incredible. And it's in our day. It's happening in our day. The Tisha B'Av 
is already turning into a different kind of a day, at least in Israel. Here, we sit on the floor and we turn down the lights and we're fasting and we're crying and we're, we're saying lamentations. In Israel, we're sitting on the floor and we're fasting and we're crying and we're saying lamentations and we are also... This is a new thing. I mean new, 20 years. There's a Tisha B'Av night. There's this new practice in the last 20, 25 years of walking around the old city of Jerusalem. It was astounding to me. I was in, I was in Israel for Tisha B'Av maybe 25 years ago. What do you do on Tisha B'Av? You sit on the floor, you cry, you fasting. That year... My aunt says, this is what we do. We went to the park uh, near, near Mamilla, the, the big park there. Independence Park. Thousands and thousands of people. We joined some group, sat on the ground, listened to Echa. And then from all over the city, there's this procession. And we're walking around the old city and then coming into the area of the Kotel. I remember two things about that. I remember three things. The first is, our daughter, our youngest daughter, Leah, was, I don't remember exactly, two years old, something like that. And I guess I wasn't thinking, we didn't bring a stroller. So I was carrying her. It was not my smartest move. Number one. Number two, <laughs> if you're already not so good at fasting, to be in Jerusalem and to take a three-mile walk carrying a two-year-old baby at the very beginning is not a good start. It, it's, not, it's not a good start. <laughs> Number three, Tisha B'Av means something different because he, it, we're looking at where it's going to be rebuilt and it's starting to be rebuilt. It is not only sitting on the floor and crying and fasting, it is also having within our eyesight the rebuilding, the redemption. It's, it's coming. It's evident. <laughs> so, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai, was he right or was he wrong? Well, I would say, on the one hand, he was wrong. Because I think that the Judaism that existed after his four words was radically different from the Judaism that existed for all of the millennia before his four words. He created a situation that minimized Judaism to such an extent and externalized Judaism to such an extent that we lost, many of us too often, lost that yearning for God, that sense of 
connecting with God that we had. This idea that that Judaism consists of Shabbos and holidays and kashas and a few other things, <coughs> it's just so, it's so wrong. It's so lacking in, in the, the scope of what the Torah really is. On the other hand, on the other hand, Probably what Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai would say is this is certainly one of the greatest miracles in Jewish history. In the 1850s and 60s and 70s and the beginning of the 1900s and, and continuing when for the first time in 1800 years it became possible for Jews in the modern era to return to Israel that they came. Not all of them us but but they came there is no other example in human history of a people that was exiled to another place for such a length of time and then went back no example it's more than that. We're going back because of uh, we want to have a Rav Cook and we want to have a Chayim. That's the point. No, no, that's the point. So, so the question is as follows: In the 1850s and 60s and 70s, in the 1900s, when it finally became possible to go back, how is it that there was number one a desire to go back, number two a memory that there's such a thing as going back, and number three an ability to figure out how to deal with life when you got back, it's only because of Ryoko and Zakai. That is, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai preserved at least the minimal amount that was necessary to nurture, to keep it alive. Okay, it took 1,800 years. Probably he didn't see that it would take so long. But that even, especially after 1,800 years, that there's this people that wants to go back and, and can figure out how to go back and how to do it. I'm thinking that, that famous sentence, more than the Jews have kept the Shabbos, mm -hmm. yeah. the Shabbos has kept the Jews, and yeah. thanks to Rabbi Yechonak, even though it was a small little thing, but without that... With, without that, we would have lost any ability to, to reconnect at all. But Jews was lost at the time. It was the only option. It's not say, saying he picked the, one of the two options. Uh, the other option was fighting, dying, and the religion dying then. Yeah. What he did was save the well, religion. Okay, okay, Rabbi Kiva disagreed with you, but that's okay. I mean, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai would be very appreciative. I, I, I don't. You're asking me. You want me to? Yeah, you want me to? Wanted to fight them. Okay. Rabbi Kiva also can got to learn and find. Okay. Rabbi Kiva also knew how to learn Gemara. So he disagreed. Okay. There's a disagreement. There's a disagreement. Okay. What would I have done? I would have called Rabbi Yochanan Zakai or Rabbi Kiva. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Call a friend. <laughs> but this story, this story has all of the elements of what Tisha B'Av is. To understand what it is that we lost and to understand how that itself includes the seeds of regaining it. 
And that is what's happening in our day. I want to finish with a story. So this is a story I heard from a friend of mine, a wonderful person. His name is Rabbi Ruben Tradberks. He used to live in Toronto. And he lives now in Jerusalem. And he told the following story. He tells a story about a fellow who was a kablan. Now in Israel, a kablan, you can't translate the word. <laughs> if you try to translate the word, you would say contractor, like a general contractor. But it doesn't... A kablan in Israel is something completely different. A kablan in Israel is, first of all, someone who's rather tough. Uh, bossy, aggressive. It's a stereotype, yes. But stereotypes have a certain amount of truth. A kaplan is a certain type of a personality in Israel. So there's this man who's a kaplan who is just like the stereotype. He's tough as nails, working with his hands all day, drives a pickup truck, is a kablan. But this is a kablan that's a little bit different than the others. He attends Dafyomi every day. He never misses davening. He learns Torah. Okay, but he's a kablan, but a certain kind of a kablan. His father passed away. And this man, the Kablan, was sitting Shiva for his father. So Rabbi Trabergs went to visit. Kablan attends his shul. He went to visit. Also attending this Shiva was another person from the shul, another person with a certain personality. I don't want anyone here to think that I'm talking about them because I'm talking about an Israeli version of this. He's the Gabbai in the shul. Not like our Gabbai. Not like our Gabbai. This Gabbai... He had a nickname. It's not our Gabbai. He had a nickname in Israel. He was called Mefaked. Mefaked, I guess you could translate it as drill sergeant. It runs on order and on time, and this is how it has to be, and these are the rules, and he's imp imposing the rules, and you've got to follow them, and he's going to make sure. Everything has got to be correct. Okay, he's a type. But the other guy sitting Chevy comes to visit. The Shiva was going to be finished on Shabbos. On Sunday, he was going to get up from Shiva 
and Sunday was Tisha B'Av. So they had the following conversation. The Kablan, the son who's sitting Shiva, says, Sunday morning, getting up from Shiva, I'm getting up, I'm leaving the house, and I'm going to work. The Gabai, Tisha B'Av, you're going to work? The Halacha is, you're not supposed to work on Tisha B'Av. Yes, in the afternoon, if you have to go to work, okay, but it's not really the best thing to go to work on Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av, is it time to go to work? The Gabbai says, I don't go to work on Tisha B'Av. I don't think it's the right thing. The Kablan says, I work double on Tisha B'Av. What do you mean? Says, you know what my job is? My job is to rebuild Jerusalem. That's my job. You think I'm just fixing walls and putting in additions? I'm rebuilding Jerusalem one house at a time. And I tell my workers, listen, you need to take off time. Okay. The day before Tisha B'Av you want to take off? That's okay. day after Tisha B'Av you want to take off? That's all right. Tisha B'Av, you show up early. Because we're rebuilding Jerusalem. That's Tisha B'Av. Some of us sit on the ground and we cry and we mourn. And some of us rebuild Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Thank you.